I'm Al Filreis, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for a poem that interests us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Pen Sound archive, writing.upen.edu slash pensound. Today, Poem Talk's engineer editor, Zach Cardner, and I have gone on the road again to Washington, D.C., to the Poetry and Literature Center at the Library of Congress, where I am joined by Rob Casper, who is the head of the aforementioned Poetry and Literature Center at the Library of Congress and our host today, who before coming to the LOC was the membership director of the Council of Literary Magazines and Press and also the program's director for the Poetry Society of America, who served as the chair for the Brooklyn Book Festival Committee and was the founding publisher of the literary magazine Jubilat, and whose regular commutation, not a bad one as these things go, happens between Brooklyn, NY, and Washington, D.C. And by Mark McMorris, whose new book of poems is The Book of Landings, published by Wesleyan in 2016, and whose previous books include The Black Reeds, Moth Wings, The Cafe at Light, Entrepot, among others, and whose critical writing has appeared widely in poetry and pedagogy, cross-cultural poetics, and the Journal of Commonwealth and Postcolonial Studies, and whose fiction has appeared in The Black Short Story in the Americas in Europe, Callaloo, and elsewhere, who has taught for many years, 19, I discovered, heading toward 20 at Georgetown University, and has been the director there of the Lannan Center for Poetics and Social Practice, and whose book of poems, The Blaze of the Puy, was selected by the poet we're discussing today, the late C.D. Wright, for the 2002 Contemporary Poetry Series, and by Mel Nichols, whose books include Day Poems, The Beginning of Beauty Part One, both from Edge, Bicycle Day from Slack Buddha Press in 2008, Catalytic Exteriorization Phenomenon, I said that, Catalytic Exteriorization Phenomenon, also Edge Books, 2009, and now I Google myself, Edge Books 2016, whose current projects are Pink Noise, a post-mastectomy poem and soundscape, and the poetry and music project called Pinktum, which you will be able to find at pinktum.com. Mel, thanks for coming to Poem Talk today. Thanks for having me. It's great. And Mark, good to see you. Good to see Thanks you. Thanks for, for coming down from Georgetown. I don't know where you live, but somewhere in D.C. And Rob, the commute is okay. I was right in characterizing it that way. The commute is fine. I'm happy to be here with all of you uh, from near and far. And Mel Pinkton, what I went to the site. It's not quite there yet altogether. Yeah, What's so, happening? It's a very new project. It's yeah. a, a sort of uh, poetry-music hybrid project, yeah. Lyric, yeah. lyric poetry. I was interested when I went there to look, so we'll, we'll, we'll keep going back. Well, we're here, the four of us today, to talk about a long poem in many sections by C.D. Wright, who died much, much, much too soon on January 12th, 2016. The book-length poem we're going to discuss is called One Big Self, and we'll be considering the opening five pages of verse, which include poem sections, Count Your Fingers, Count Heads, In the Mansion of Happiness, I want to go home, and a few pages later, the poem, My Dear Conflicted Reader, those with copies of the Copper Canyon Press edition will find these passages on pages 3 through 8 and on page 14. One Big Self was published in 
2003 with the subtitle Prisoners of Louisiana by Twin Palms Press with photographs by Deborah Luster and then by Copper Canyon as One Big Self and Investigation in 2007. From the CD Write page at Penn Sound, we'll be hearing recordings of the above-mentioned sections of this verse investigation. First, from her 2003 reading at the Key West Literary Seminar, and then from her reading at the University of Chicago in March of 2005. So here now is the late C.D. Wright reading from One Big Self. Count your fingers, count your toes, count your nose holes, count your blessings, count your stars, lucky or not. Count your loose change, count the cars at the crossing, count the miles to the state line, Count the ticks you pulled off the dog, count your calluses, count your shells, count the points on the antlers, count the, count the new jacks keys, count your cards, cut them again. Count heads, count the men's, count the women's. There are five main counts in the cellar work area. 445, first morning count, inmate must stand for the count. The count takes as long as it takes. Control center knows how many should be in what area, no one moves from area A to area B without control knowing. If inmate is stuck out for the count, inmate receives a write-up. Three write-ups and inmate goes to lockdown. Once in lockdown, you will relinquish your things. Plastic soap dish, jar of Vaseline, comb or hair pick, paperback. Upon return to your unit, the inventory officer will return your things. Soap dish, Vaseline, comb, hair pick, paperback. Upon release, you may have your possessions. Soap dish, Vaseline, comb, pick, book. Whereupon your true happiness can begin. In the mansion of happiness, whoever possesses cruelty must be sent back to justice. Whoever gets into idleness must come to poverty. Whoever becomes a Sabbath breaker must be taken to the pillory and there remain until he loses two turns. I want to go home, Patricia whispered. I won't say I like being in prison, but I have learned a lot and I like experiences. The terriblest part is being away from your families, Juanita. I miss my screen porch. I know every word to every song on Purple Rain, Willie. I'm never leaving here, grasshopper in front of the woodshop posing beside a coffin he built. The last time you was here, I had a head full of bees. See, what I did was I accidentally killed my brother. He spoke without inflection. Ask how many brothers and sisters did he have, on my mother's side, two brothers, well now one brother, and two sisters. On my father's side, 15 sisters. When I handed Franklin his prince, his face broke. Damn, he said to no one, I done got old. I kept a dog. When you walk through Capricorn, keep your arms down and close to your body. That's my sign. No, she can't have no mattress. No, she can't have no spoons. See if she throwed her food yet. No, she can't have no more. My name is Patricia, but my real name is Zabonia. She spoke softly. Some have their baby and are brought back on the bus the next day and act like it doesn't bother them a bit. Some cry all the way and for days. Guard. My mama was 15 when she had me. That's common in the country. 
Some can learn and will be okay. Some could stay in the class forever and not learn. S, when she was a little girl, was struck in the head with a machete, and I don't think she'll learn much more. She is so sweet. You wouldn't believe she had did all the things they say she did. Don't ask. My mugshot totally turned me against getting photographed. When Grasshopper came to Big Gola, his wife was pregnant. He saw the baby once, next when he was 20. Now he's inside, in Texas, second time, but he's short now. He'll get out soon. I miss driving. We're both here because of love. Zabonia of herself and her best friend. I am highly hypnotizable. I would wash that man's feet and drink the water. My dear conflicted reader, if you will grant me that most of us have an equivocal nature and that when we waken we have not made up our minds which direction we're headed, so that you might see a man driving to work in a perfume and dye-free shirt and a woman with an overdone tan hold up an orange flag in one hand, a Virginia Slim in the other, as if this were their predestination. Grant me that both of them were likely contemplating a different scheme of things. Where do you want to spend eternity? The church marquee demands on the way to my boy's school. Smoking or non-smoking? I admit I had not thought of where or which direction in exactly those terms. The radio ministry says G.O.D. has a wrong answer button, and we are all waiting for it to go off. Count your gray hairs, count your chigger bites, count your pills, count the times the phone rings, count your T-cells, count your mosquito bites, count the days since your last menses, count the chickens you've eaten, count your cankers, count the storm candles, count your stitches, count your broken bones, count the flies you killed before noon. So the selections that we've chosen for Poem Talk um, include two of these roll call-ish counting inventory check surveillance things um the first has a lot of second person count your fingers and then at the end of my dear conflicted reader we get another catalog count your gray hairs mel who's you are we sure that it's stable is it the prisoners is it us maybe cd Wright? who who's count your gray hairs is it sure that it's the prisoners I think I'm going to talk about the title, One Big Self, and I think there's something collective about the use of the second person there, um, which I have a lot to say about. Yeah. But, um, but, I, but I think it is addressing us, too. Mark, the um, count heads, count the men's. When we get to that second passage, we're pretty sure that there it's a roll call and that control center is controlling the prisoners, but... But I, I'm with Mel in thinking that we must be somehow included in this. So what, what's your take on who we are? And of course, that second thing that I mentioned is titled My Dear Conflicted Reader. So obviously, we have to be implicated somehow. Your thoughts on this? Oh, it was just that the, um, the beginning catalog, um, you know, which fronts the whole, the whole big self, the whole book, um, and in some ways stands outside of it. Um, the your um, doesn't yet have a context, um, you know, so it's a kind of a general you. Um, and I, I suppose I'm, I'm registering a slight difference between uh, what could 
be included in the U um, in that first catalog, and then and then the U in the second catalog on page fourteen, in the sense that there is a context now. So then maybe we're wrestling more by the time we get to the yeah second by one. the time we get to the second one. Is it possible that the first piece is a proem and it's really really talking to us as we enter? I think we're we're called upon in these in, in the the sort of incantatory count your fingers count your toes to think about both the the person being addressed and the person um, stating those actions. You know, where there's this relationship between the the the, the inmates and um, the wardens and the and the guards, and of course CD herself entering into the space. So Mel, it seems like we're back to you on one big self. Um, you know, when I, when I see the line, count the miles to the state line, I think about C.D. Wright the many times in the book and elsewhere where she said, you know, you drive an hour, you see four penitentiaries. So there's this feeling like she's coming, she's approaching, she's entering. But at the same time, as you were implying in your first comment, she's got to be part of it. I, I, I think there's a journey here that's... Um presented to us and it's both a personal journey of one person going in to document to understand um, and then as she's going into this journey she's also choosing to enter a kind of collective and I think and, and she talks about this in the introductory remarks too is she's she's asking us to come into this collective journey uh, at the same time that she's asking us to, um, and, and through this juxtaposition of the I and the U in the counting that we're talking about, she's asking us to recognize the individuals who are in the collective. Can we all talk about the risks of the project? Hmm. I mean, I, yeah. um, I like the metaphor of the journey. I, I, why does she go into that space? Um, she goes into that space to bear witness of a certain kind, um, to listen to stories, um, and to gather experiences of the place. Um, Mel said to understand, uh, to try to understand the place, um, which is a way of understanding the contemporary moment. The other thing that she does when she's in there, presumably, is to, she makes a record. Um, and she ha and so then she travels back out of that space with her recollections and her material notes. And I'm very interested in this question of um, what happens then. Um, you know what? Because the, the 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 raw material of the recollections and the notes are not sufficient yet. They cannot be made public yet at that stage. So some other action has to take place. And um, I think that's where the risk comes in, Al. In 2002, uh, uh, Jubilat did an interview uh, with CD around the time she was finishing up the, the first book uh, and working on the exhibit, the One Big Self exhibit. Um, and we talked to her about... Did you the, conduct the interview? I conducted the interview. Uh, I did it with um, Nadia Colburn in... March 30th, 2002, we went to um, Providence and spent time at uh, CD's house and also at her office. But we talked about the process of her writing this, and there were three components to that. 
um, that she discussed, uh, the visits themselves, uh, the photographs that Deborah Lester had taken, and the correspondence that she kept up with some of the prisoners afterwards. We asked her about that and sort of what was most important. And she said basically that the conversation was the most generous, generative aspect of, of the three uh, for, in terms of her writing because, quote, there's nothing more compelling than the human voice. Then the correspondence. The more you read, the more you know about the prisoners and their conditions and the harder it gets. The correspondence put other demands on the work and offered more ways to reference, more things to think about. So as I understand it, what we're saying is that one risk is whether the visits, brief visits, three, three or four, you know, whether the notes that come out of that, as Mark described them, I think accurately, can include note quotations, but also stuff that she brings to it and her own politics about the free world. And then the second problem is the resistance of poetry generally to this mode. Mel, your thoughts on any of this? I mean, she they, says, I wanted to see if my art could handle that hoe, H-O-E. Yeah, H-O-E, yeah. That suggests that I, she is, that's mm. a risky statement because she's implying mm. a certain labor. Yeah, it is labor. And, and I think when I, when I said understand, I, I'm actually kind of concerned about having used that word specifically when I was talking earlier. Um, because I think she's going into this journey as you were um, talking about collecting this sort of evidence to bear witness. And she's maybe more of a conduit and trying to present everything sort of as it is while still, you know, admitting you can't not be, you know, you have to, there's no way not to be subjective because you're bringing yourself in there as the messenger. Um, but I just wanted to add, you know, this, this sort of site of trauma, uh, it, it's people who have been through trauma who maybe some of it, much of it generational even, who then are perhaps acted out of trauma and have ended up in this space where more trauma is inflicted in this collective way. And I think it's a risk to kind of put yourself out there mm. as the conduit for that. That's mm. a really scary place to go. Right. I, I'd be terrified. Right. It's terrifying. And, and, um, it, you know, the word that came to me, and I, may, I might be, um, this might be exaggerated, it's hyperbolic, is that um, I think the text is very aware, especially when you, in light of the preface, um, that, 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 that you're running the risk of blasphemy um, um, in, in staging this, these notes, in staging this raw material that you've collected. Um, and, you know, that, that, the, that optimally, um, uh, ethically, um, you should want to be the conduit only right a, a non you know you should you should abide by the principle of uh, rigorous non-interference and simply somehow manage to uh, facilitate the transmission uh, from inside to outside but um, then again and quite obviously <laughs> you know when you have this voluminous mass of undifferentiated private raw material, you cannot just drop that in front of the public. Um, so that's, that's the, just one of the many fallacies of that dream. The other is, of course, that, you know, she says, I, I didn't intend to aestheticize, you know, uh, but this is a poem. Right, so there's no such thing as a non-translation. There's no such thing as transparency here, right? 
I think what what tries to redeem it is the is that the labor of the poet is so massively evident. You know, the the, the work of gathering, organizing, uh, selecting, uh, mixing, interpolating, and all of this just to bring that down to a content um, that can be made public. I think that's a that's that's an impossible. <laughs> you right. know, there's a degree of impossibility about what she set out to do. Right. And I think we have to sort of I think the book kind of I don't think it's showing off, but I do think that there's something about that 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 we that we need to notice if we're kind of weighing the risks. Yes. Yeah, how can you possibly <laughs> document without leaving a mark and you know, I was reading an, an interview about the the photographic part of that, and the and the um, point was made that without these photographs uh, for many of these prisoners, the mugshot would have been the last photograph ever taken of them. And so there was this sort of, I don't know, redemptive might be the wrong kind, but I mean, this different uh, artifact becomes the last trace. Uh, and that so it's forever changed in that way. And Rob, I know you were going to say something else, but I was just going to throw something at you. And of course, you can say what you intended to say anyway. Uh, <laughs> from the preface, not to idealize, I'm quoting, not to judge, not to exonerate, which is a powerful word, not to aestheticize immeasurable levels of pain, not to demonize, not anathematize. What I wanted was to unequivocally lay out the real feel of hard time. All those monosyllables there. I just wanted to add uh, something that she said uh, in this Jubilat interview that, that connects to what Mark is talking about, which is that she said uh, in describing uh, uh, her mindset and Deborah Luster's mindset, she says, she meaning Deborah was very intent that we be nonpartisan. I think of myself as a realist at core it was still crucial to remind myself that the book we were making was theirs, just as she, as in Deborah, photographed them the way they chose to be photographed. So what's interesting to me about how she couches that thinking is that she's saying it's crucial to remind herself of this fact. And, you, and I assume in saying that she meant crucial to continue to remind herself throughout the process. I think in this book and in, and in her work in general, C.D. Wright is a great combination of, uh, of um, committed and pissed off, as she likes to say, and also very humble and willing to live with messiness. On, um, at the beginning of the aforementioned prose preface, there is a, a, a phrase, um, the resistance of poetry to the conventions of evidentiary writing. Uh, that really got my attention. So she's struggling against what poetry traditionally doesn't want to do as evidence. And then, just to make sure she really ramps this up, she refers to Mandelstam, Akhmatova, and Ceylon, among others, just to pick those three. Those, are, those people are um, referring to a specially urgent sort of evidentiary writing. That's, that's witnessing, bearing witness to, in all three of those cases, mass killing. In this case, mass incarceration. She's really concerned about her own poetics in its development at this point in her career and she wants to know why poetry and and the four of us must have something to say about this on on our own terms why poetry tends to resist the conventions of evidentiary writing if it does i was thinking about um actually the 
the, the origins of writing and thinking about that idea of counting and accounting and that... that the origins of writing. The origins of writing are um, argued to be in accounting, in, uh, and then those are the first marks that evolve um, actually rather quickly over a few hundred years from the time of the, the marks to account um, to becoming something that more like we would consider writing as we know it. So that, that there's something really not primal because the, the accounting is civilization, um, but there's just something basic going on with that. That's actual, so great. Yeah. You're going back like 8,000 years or something, 10,000 years. Uh, evidentiary, Mel, and also economic. That's the origin, right? Yeah. And that's what CD, well, we know that, we know evidentiary is important because we're just talking about it, but economic is also important. As the towns decline, and the prisons grow. As industries disappear, prisons proliferate. She has an economic position. So writing yeah. is accounting and evidentiary. That's really cool. Mm. Um, you know, the writers you named, Al, uh, Mandelstam, Akhmatova, and, and Selan, um, I think it, I think that what they are, um, what they have made, at least insofar as you know, you could call uh, translations of them what they have made, um, are aesthetic artifacts. Um, they are lyric. They are sort of markedly um, part of the lyric world. Um, I wonder. I wonder. I, I thought it was so curious the list that she, the the, the writers that she re referenced, because Rukeyser is right there, <laughs> right. That's the, probably Rukeyser, the best predecessor Muriel, for her. Muriel Rukeyser is right there, um, and you know, just given CD's uh, interest in the long poem, you know, one can't help but 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 read her her list of of avatars or um, precursors as. Um, as, as studiously sort of, sort of trying not to mention Rukeyser. <laughs> yeah. There's a certain um, sublimation of that going on. That's so interesting. Or, or to put it another way, she's really loading it up by, by, by going. I mean, Rukeyser was affiliated with the Communist Party. She thought about Spain a lot. But it's not um, Auschwitz or the Gulag, you know. So she's really loading up by citing these others. Uh, that's so interesting, and 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 um, and she's taking it out of it, uh, out of it, a, a specifically American uh, geography, a specifically American uh, context and history, and putting it more broadly. I don't know what the more broad environment, what she would call that. I doubt she would say the West. Um, she might say humanity. Yeah. She might say the poetry of witness to life, human life lived in extremity. Which is one of the reasons I'm so interested in Mel's taking us back to basics of writing. What can writing do but count? And maybe that roll call counting that happens every day can t be turned around, you know? And one more thing. Um, I, when, one big self, I thought for sure that has to be in Tom Jode's speech at the end, to Ma at the end of The Grapes of Wrath, um, where he has that... It's the only great thing in that book in Steinbeck, but he has that great speech to Ma where he says, Ma, I'm beginning to realize that I, wherever a guy is getting hit by a cop, I'm feeling it. Wherever a guy's losing, it's all guys. Wherever a guy's losing the job, I've lost my job. You know, 
Um, when people are hungry, when children are going hungry, I'm hungry too. I'm beginning to realize. And he doesn't say one big self. But it makes me realize that the political gesture of undoing the subject-object separation, which is what happens when, uh, the, although she's from Arkansas, but she's sort of a Ivy League professor, you know, Brown, right? Um, going down here and being the subject to their object. The only way to collapse that is to imagine one big self. My dear conflicted reader, if you will grant me that most of us have an equivocal nature and that when we waken we have not made up our minds which direction we're headed, so that you might see a man driving to work in a perfume and dye-free shirt and a woman with an overdone tan hold up an orange flag in one hand, a Virginia Slim in the other, as if this were their predestination. Grant me that both of them were likely contemplating a different scheme of things. Where do you want to spend eternity? The church marquee demands on the way to my boy's school. Smoking or non-smoking? Who's the conflict? She's assuming a conflicted reader. What is that? My personal response is to know that I should spend more time in this space, right, um, of, of the documentation. But my... I, I resist it as a, personally as a reader. I don't want to have to go there, right? Mark, help us with the first line of that po- prose poem. If you, will, if you will grant me, I assume you would be us, if you will grant me that most of us have an equivocal nature and that when we waken, we have not made up our minds which direction we're headed, headed so that you might see a man driving to work in a perfume and dye-free shirt, that's such a loaded reference, and a woman with an overdone tan hold up an orange flag in one hand, a Virginia Slim in the other, as if this were their predestination. What an interesting digression. What do you make of that? Hmm. Hmm. There's a lot going on in here. There's so much going on in here. I mean, there's there's a gesture to the archaic um, you know, dedicatory letter to the patron. I mean, they're, they're to, and then to the reader. In the middle of the text. In the middle of the text. <laughs> um, you know, there's the apologia for, the, for what you were about to read. Um, I'm very sorry for having written this unworthy book, but, you know, gr- you know indulge me. Um, you know, I, I, I pray. You know, there, there's, there's, so there's all of that going on. And then, and then I, like, I love the way she handles this question of um, direction we're headed um, you know, in a sense that the that the equivocal nature. I mean, it sounds like there's confusion, uncertainty, and a, a kind of a, a Keatsian space where we're, we're uncertain. You know, our, 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 our rational minds can't quite decide what to do. Um, but but in some sense, um, you know, that that's far preferable to the condition that the prisoners exist in, when when directionality is entirely foreclosed. Um, that's great. Um, Rob, when I got to that list after the Conflicted Reader piece, count your gray hairs. Okay, I thought of myself. Count your trigger bites. Oh, it's so annoying. Those. Count your pills. You know, I've got to take my pill. All I could think of is my, this is so out of Ceylon and Akhmatova too, you know, all we can think of are our minor inconveniences. And that's the thing, and they're all physical too. And that's the thing that makes us realize that we are not part of a mass incarceration system and that we need to start thinking about our, you know, our die-free shirts and and our easy life. 
Yeah, except for the fact that it 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 parallels the the beginning of the poem. So it both. So now we're being counted. We're 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 supposed to yes. count. We're yes. being ordered to count yes. in the same way that presumably the inmates, what we're imagining to be the inmates uh, in the beginning, are ordered to count. So um, that 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 distance is is uh, conflicted or is is a complicated distance and not necessarily so uh, delineated. I also I love that this is. I mean, this could be my my dear reader. It could be my conflicted reader. It could be dear conflicted reader, but it is my dear conflicted reader. There's something so intimate mm. um, that makes me think she is addressing the beloved. She is addressing some part of herself in a certain kind of humorous way that plays against the formality of how that prose poem begins, mixing tones and um, messing with us a little bit. And later, there's a, another letter, my dear affluent reader, mm -hmm. which begins, welcome to the Pecan Land Mall. So she, she's she's playing with that address as mm -hmm. as well. Um, I have one last question for all of you. Uh, it's going back to the preface, um, and it really goes back to Mel's first comment about one big self. So let me read it and just ask each of you to respond. The popular perception is that art is apart. One word apart. I insist it is a part of. Something not in dispute is that people in prison are apart from. If you can accept whatever level of discipline and punishment you adhere to momentarily aside, that the ultimate goal would be to reunite the separated with the larger human enterprise. I mean, there she's specifically perhaps talking about reintegration into non-prison life into free life, but she's also saying something bigger, obviously, to reunite the separated with the larger human enterprise. It might behoove us to see prisoners, among others, as they elect to be seen in their larger selves. If we go there, if not with our bodies, then at least with our minds, which is what we're doing with this book, we are more likely to register the implications. End of prose preface. Who wants to start in responding to that? Rob? I'll jump in. I'll jump in. Um, what I appreciate in in um, that little uh, section uh, is the way in which she talks about the power of poetry, the power of her poetry, the power of this particular project as empathic, as allowing us to imagine um, someone else who would otherwise be easily to imagine in the most diminished, um, limiting, uh, um, dehumanizing ways as someone larger uh, the, the one big self that she's referring to. And uh, I, it makes me think of all the ways, all, the, all that she brings to bear on this book, all the various tools that she's trying to use to accomplish that. And um, the, the, it's, it's ambitious, but it's also, it comes out of necessity. I feel like this is, a, this is a book of necessity. It's a book where she's trying to do something big and important. She's hoping for that kind of sense of, of um, explaining this world to us and um, doing it in a way that um, can't help but be moving. Yeah, I, th I think that necessity is, is tied to that bearing witness that the book is, is doing, yeah. Um, there's, there's this whole... Well, there, there are a lot of dichotomies, There's, and, and the inside, outside, and the individual and the collective, and I think that we're, be, we're being asked to sort of have that fluidity 
in negotiating these things as we encounter this material. Mm. Mm. Well said. Mm. Mark, mm. your thoughts on this? Reunite the separated. Mm-hmm. One mm-hmm. big self, larger selves. Mm-hmm. I'm reading, I'm, I'm encountering this text as, um, um, you know, willing to make full use of the techniques and devices and procedures, um, you, know, you know, bequeathed to us, to poetry by, uh, by modernism, you know, you know, starting with Rob's reference to the fragment, but then you have the cut up, you have the, you know, the, 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 the constructivist impulse in here as well. Uh, you know, it's a very materialist um, uh, work. And, um, you know, I, I, I appreciate the, the sense that um, um, we are to encounter this, uh, uh, this material uh, which, interestingly enough, if I could just say one one thing about that, when she reads it, um, there's more of a flow. There's more of a fluidity, a consecutiveness, a continuity. When I read it to myself, I really feel the fragmentariness, the fragmentation of the whole thing. So the irony of the book, and I think that this is where I'm going, is that her she wants to, in some sense, she lets her pieces lie. She doesn't reunite the separated, <laughs> you know, she of these pieces, you know. in wholeness, but not to the point where aesthetically she's going to stitch everything no, together. No, she doesn't. There's right. no lyric totality. There's right. no continuity of luscious prose or even witnessing prose. It's, 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 she doesn't believe in the rhetoric of the kind of lyric rhetoric of, of, of conclusion. Uh, you know, there's not an argument that's being settled in this poem. Yes, 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 yes. So Steinbeck, which was maybe the stupidest analogy I've ever made in 100 and, 105 episodes of Poem Talk, actually becomes a great counterexample because that is a kind of Steinbeck being squishy communist, 1939, squishy, holistic, putting everything together. And I think Mark is dead right about this modernist origin. And I think Mel's right in the origin of writing itself, trying to go back to the basics. And then, then there's someone like Ceylon who would say, look, fragments were real. So rather than my poetry seeming unreal, it's the most realistic thing that could possibly be when the self has been so atomized and destroyed in other words, the alienated labor of a writer going to a penitentiary. The writing has to reverse the alienation of that labor. I keep thinking of that hoe. And so I think that this kind of writing, if I can do the one big self, then I can um, redress the problem of the separation. And art needs to be part of and not tolerate mass incarceration as something that puts people away with no access to pretty well-established writers at Brown University in the North, like me. I have to do this in order for the poetics to work. Mm. We could talk a long time about this. It's been great so far. Why don't we just go around and say one more thing that you had come here today to say but didn't get a chance yet. Um, Let's each of us take one more, make one more point. Um, Who wants to start? I'll say I miss CD Wright desperately. Um, Do you want to say just one thing in memory? uh, She was a really brave poet and a poet who was moving always in some new direction. And I hope that uh, poets continue to do that kind of work. And I, I guess we should say that we, the four of us, talked about what we should do here 
on Zach's and my trip to D.C. And then we decided to do this at your suggestion. And I'm really glad we did because I think we come from four... I mean, we're sort of in the large scheme of things kind of on the in the same mode, but I think we come from four different places. And here we are, you know, I think agreeing on the power of this thing. So it's that's a great way to memorialize someone is to have four people in the poetry world to sort of spend some time. Mel, did I buy you some time to think of one more point? <laughs> you can memorialize <laughs> two or one more thought on the book. Uh, one thing that I, I think was pointed out outside of the work itself was that a lot of the prisoners um, were not literate. And so I think it's just an interesting thing that I wanted to note at some point that they're now represented in the world by this, these marks that they could not themselves read. Yeah. Which I think is, I mean, that's just part of the trauma, I think of the whole, uh, catastrophe that we're talking about which is that there's not access to literacy which is it's just shocking to me in a similar way that the mass incarceration at the level it is in our country is is shocking yeah so the poet's work of bespeaking is sometimes projective and condescending but sometimes is the witness uh if someone is inside for a long time and is 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 to start with undereducated then be speaking is something a poet should do responsibly and not worry so much so much about the presumptuousness of that it's a very fine line it's a very Mm -hmm. difficult thing Mm -hmm. mark uh one last point i i um i wrestled with uh um with precisely uh you know the the relationship of this book to aesthetics and um, but what I would say to myself, I think where she came out on this is to say, uh, this needs to be made public, and and this is how I can do that. This is how I can try to do that. There 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 might be other ways of doing it. If I were morally safer, I would do it one way. If I were, uh, you know, if I had a uh, if I were John Steinbeck, I would do it one way. Uh, if I you know, but 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 this is the way I can do it. And, and if I'm honest with, and I'm going to be honest with myself, because I think honesty was her highest value. I'm going to be honest in what I can and can't do, what the work can and cannot do. And come what may, I'm going to put it out there. I love that. I love that. It goes back to your question of risk. The risk didn't, she didn't turn aside from the risk. Wow. Um, my final word is not going to be as good as that, but, um, I just wanted to end by telling an Akhmatova story, uh, a famous one. She was standing in line at the gulag. Uh, a woman behind her recognized that she was a writer, she, the, the famous Anna Akhmatova, and looked around where they were at this horrible place and said to Akhmatova, um, can you describe this? And Akhmatova said, I can. And the woman who'd been suffering got a smile on her face. It's a famous story about bearing witness. It's a true story, apparently. And following from what Mark just said movingly, if you can explain, describe this and someone behind you can't, then go the fuck ahead if you can. And that's why Akhmatov is such a wonderful basis. 
Well, we like to end poem talk um, with a minute or two of gathering paradise, which is a chance for, uh, for us to spread wide our narrow hands to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world. So who wants to start with a recommendation? I will. Mark. Since we're in uh, Washington, D.C., um, I am duty-bound, I'm compelled to, uh, to say, if you're ever in Washington, D.C., you should stop by Bridge Street Books. This is the center of, no, uh, center is the wrong word. This is the, 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 the pure anarchism of the contemporary. Um, so that's my paradise. That's fantastic. <laughs> that is paradise. Rob, gather some paradise. Well, uh, we are... Uh, recording this, having this conversation in the poetry room where the poet laureate can entertain visitors. And in fact, we're sitting across from the poet laureate's desk. Um, it's not a very big desk. It's not a very big desk. It's more ceremonial than anything. The poet laureate doesn't really spend much time in here, but it, this space means something. And um, I feel similarly, similarly uh, to Mark in, in the sense that I feel like I have to speak of our current poet laureate, the 21st poet laureate consultant in poetry, Juan Felipe Herrera, who I'm delighted to say, uh, as we announced um, earlier in, in April, will serve a second term. It's wonderful to have him as our first uh, Hispanic poet laureate, and um, I'm looking forward to seeing what he does and celebrating it around the country. Thank you, Rob. And thanks again for hosting us. Mel, uh, gather some paradise. So Mark mentioned um, Bridge Street Books. So I feel I need to mention that um, there are readings at Bridge Street Books and a number of uh, venues in D.C. that you can find out about at dcpoetry.com. And so you can go to that web address. You can sign up for a listserv to find out about readings in the Washington, D.C., area. Um, many fabulous readings are at Bridge Street Books. And yeah, D- I did, did a little, being a Philly guy and really New York directed, um, I did a real, about a year ago, I did a real research project of finding out who's here, what venues, and just it's not that hard to find. I mean, this wasn't a, don't pat me on the back for this, but it was, it's deep, it's plentiful, it's really interesting what's going on here. I'm really glad we came down. We should do it again. Um, my gathering paradise is, is Rob Casper again. Sorry, you did one that's related to you, and I'm going to do one that's related to you. Um, the Library of Congress, of course, over the many decades has um, made and stored recordings of poets reading their poetry, and the reels and cassettes number in the thousands, and I just want to say that, and we've had this, Rob and I have had a conversation that's lasted a few years now about how important all that is to get out there, and Rob is doing heroic work in trying to make it all available, and um, speaking from the Penn Sound side, I couldn't be more grateful that there are, we at Penn Sound don't particularly care that things are at Penn Sound, we just want to create however unofficial a consortia of people who have these recordings, and to know that we need to get them out there and listen to them. So, Rob, thank you for, for all your efforts. Well, that's all the counting your nose holes we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks to my guests. Thanks so much to my guests, Mark McMorris, Rob Casper, and Mel Nichols. And once again to Rob and his colleagues... 
including Matt, here in the Poetry and Literature Center at the Library of Congress for hosting us, and to Poem Talks director and engineer Zach Cardner, who made the trip down from Philly. Thank you, Zach. And to Poem Talks editor, the same amazing Zach Cardner. Next time on Poem Talk, back at the Writer's House, I will be joined by Ariel Reznikoff, Anna Strong, and Pierre Joris to talk about two poems by the aforementioned, much aforementioned Paul Ceylon. This is Al Filris, and I hope you'll join us for that or another episode of Poem Talk. <laughs>